Good afternoon or good evening, and welcome to Inside the Writer's Studio, the podcast where we talk with writers about their lives, their craft, their business, and their latest work. I'm your host, Charlie Lovett, and our podcast is sponsored by Bookmarks. Bookmarks is a literary nonprofit whose programs include the largest annual book festival in the Carolinas. Come visit Bookmarks at our community gathering space and nonprofit independent bookstore in downtown Winston-Salem, North Carolina. My guest today is New York Times bestselling author Jason Mott, who is here in Winston-Salem for the Bookmarks Movable Feast and whose novel The Crossing will be discussing today. Jason, welcome to Inside the Writer Studio. Thank you for having me. So I don't, I don't always ask this question, but for some reason with this particular book, it, I just was very curious about where did the first idea come from and, and when did you know or how did you know hey, this idea might actually be a book and not just an idea. <laughs> um, well, I think the, the, the idea came from a combination of things. One, the largest influence came from just a, a general fear of the future. Um, uh-huh. You know, dystopian uh-huh. novels are always just an expressed fear of the future. Yeah. So it was the same thing. It was, there was this period of just watching the news and seeing like way too much bad news about the environment, wars. Like it, it all just kind of flooded over me over a period of time. Um, and I've got, you know, young nieces and you know nephews that I care a lot about. And I was wondering, you know, what about the future for them and things like that. And that was I was kind of going through that at the same time that I was wanting to write a novel about siblings, about brothers and sisters mm-hmm. and like that bond of family. And like so the two just kind of like meshed together really well. Um, the idea was, you know, I, I finally had the, the brother and sister novel I've been wanting to write with the dystopian, like, what if the things I'm afraid of for the country and for the world environmentally, like, you know, war, all this kind of stuff, like. What if all these things finally get to play out? Um, I get to kind of play out that stage and see what happens there. So the two just kind of hit this perfect storm of like narrative. <laughs> and you have you you have not just a war but a disease also. So you yes. got it. You got it coming just coming and going. All on there yeah. exactly. Uh, and so in a way you have, and the way you've written the disease, it's kind of working its way through humanity from from the elderly down. And right. of course, as we know, war is really good at mowing down the youth. So yes, uh, you, you kind of have have. Threats from both ends, I guess you would say. Yeah, because, again, I wanted to kind of really galvanize not only my fears, but I think, um, you know, the fears of others. Like, And we, and obviously humanity fears, we all fear our kind of our terminal end. Um, yeah. But we also fear that we're the thing we're leaving behind is like, is that we don't have control of what we're leaving behind. We're leaving behind something worse than we inherited. Right. Um, and so for me, I wanted to have this this kind of epic pandemic where the... Those in power, like the older generations, they knew to a certainty that this was the end, like not only for them, but possibly for those around them as well. And like those behind them also. Um, To me, that was a sense of kind of raising the stakes and creating something, a different kind of space to work within. And kind Mm -hmm. of really trying to play out the idea Mm of how would humanity react to that? How these characters who are just trying to be a brother and sister, they just happen to have been dealt this really bad hand of when they are when their brother and sister kind of exist. Um, they just happen to be in, been born into the worst of times, so to speak. And how do they navigate this world of insanity with still trying to navigate basic brother and sister trust issues and things yeah. of that matter? Yeah. There's a line early in the book um, which really struck me. Everyone had impetus and direction now that everything was falling apart. Uh, <laughs> and I wonder if you could just talk about that a little bit. And, and do, you, do you think that's what will happen? Or is that what's happening now even? I think... I think that that sentiment grows out of our our fascination with post-apocalyptic. Yeah. Um, because I think the the idea is that 
because we're comfortable, we have time to think about things. We have time to overthink. We have time to build anxiety. We worry about bills. We worry about taxes. We worry about whatever's going on. And it all seems very trivial. And yet it is all very, it's very all encompassing. Yeah. You know, we beat ourselves up for stressing over quote unquote minor things. And yet these are the things that give us stress. And so I think we all carry this vision and this, this kind of idealized apocalypse where if I just had to worry about survival, life would be simpler. And yeah. I think that's why we love, you know, the zombie movie genre and like post-apocalyptic sure. stories because those characters are only worrying about survival. And there is a weird kind of kind of empathy and a weird desire in us to say, I don't have to worry about paying the car note this month and the, the mortgage, like all of that's gone. I just got to eat and sleep and take care of the people that I love. The things that are most primal and most simple, they're all that I have to worry about now. Um, and so I, my, the idea was that with this kind of global pandemic and things getting as bad as they are, everyone was able to finally pare it down to the things they really cared about and kind yeah. of have that focus and direction that we all long for and yet so desperately try to find. Yeah. There's a reference also early in the book to T.S. Eliot's brilliant poem, The Hollow Men, and you paraphrase his line about the world ending not with a bang but with a whimper, um, which makes me wonder, what are your influences? What Were there other novels, other poets that that sort of fed into uh, what you're doing in The Crossing? Yes, for sure. Um, my two favorite authors are um, John Gardner and William Golding. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And it's funny because the the first, not the very first chapter, the first, re like, because there's, there's these vignettes that occurred before the main chapters. Yeah, yeah. But the very first main chapter, um, it opens with kind of a reiteration of the opening of a John Gardner novel. Yeah. Um, and so so there's a little, little Easter eggs like that hidden throughout. Yeah. Um, I grew up... When I, I came across John Gardner's Grendel when I was around 14 or 15 yeah. um, in an English lit class, and we only read like an excerpt of it. But so predating that, before that, I was a big fan of like epic poetry, Beowulf, the Odyssey, the Iliad. Like I grew up just loving mythology and folklore and those kinds mm -hmm, of tales. Mm -hmm. um, and so the epic of Beowulf was always and still continues to be my favorite kind of my favorite story, period. Yeah. Like, yeah. Um, so I knew that story very well and I was a big fan of it. And I, I kind of felt like I had mined all I could from it, even though, you know, I was still pretty young and, you know, but it's like, oh, I love Beowulf. I know it. And then I came across Grendel oh, wow. and yeah. it was like, I didn't even know that was a possibility. It was like, yeah. holy cow, you took this, this story that I know and completely turned on his ear. And now I don't even know anything about this character anymore. And it was very funny because I remember when I finished reading that, um, I, that was the moment that I knew I wanted to be a writer. Like I remember very yeah. vividly. There was this kind of this, this feeling of like, almost like a bell resonating. And I remember thinking specifically, I said, I want to make someone else feel this way. Yeah. And that was what started me on the writing path. And so ever since then, I go back to John Gardner and William Golding almost on an annual basis and yeah. read their works because they, they're just really amazing. They were just really amazing authors. Yeah. Yeah. There's one other book that, that gets mentioned, and that is Tommy, uh, one of the twins, mentions reading The Things They Carried, which is a book that, yes. like, yes. when I first read that book, I think it was the first time and I don't pretend that I'm there yet, but but I started to understand the Vietnam experience. Yes. Um, and yes. even just more broadly, the the experience of, of young men in warfare. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. What what did you learn from from that book, and what did it bring to to your work? It was that for me. I think it was kind of what you're describing there. Like for me, reading the things they carried was it was a very transcendent moment. Mm -hmm. um, and again, like I've never been in the military. I've never been in war. So I'm not going to say I know anything about war. But it was the the, the, it gave me the strongest feeling of what I can imagine the people that go to war and come back from it are experienced. And, yeah, yeah. Um, and that is, is I, think, I feel like that book got me the closest that I'll ever get to be able to fully empathize 
and relate to those people and, you know, and just kind of grapple with that. And so um, for me, I, I did kind of include that because the, the book carries this theme of war and violence and things yeah, like that. Yeah. Um, and so I, I feel like I couldn't, it was obviously, it was an influencer for the book as a whole, just because it, again, like it is such a, Tim O'Brien does such an amazing job in that novel of, yeah. of conveying the, the uncertainty and the horror and the, the, the emotional, the emotional weight of it all. Like it, yeah. it's just such an amazing book. And just the ordinary humanness yes. of it too. Yeah. You know, yeah. Yes, it's just, exactly. if, for any of our listeners who haven't read that book, go out and put pause <laughs> Go read the things they carried, please then, then come back. We'll finish the conversation. Yes, please do. Um, so tell us the basic. We've sort of been talking about it's a post-apocalyptic and the things that are happening, but tell us the basic setup of uh, of the crossing. What what's the the story that's that's happening at this particular moment? Yeah, the basic setup is there is this pandemic that is kind of wiping out the human the the global population, starting with the older generation and kind of working backwards, where people are getting sick, they fall asleep and just don't wake up. And mm-hmm. then, you know, eventually they die. And it starts off affecting like 80, 90 year olds and then 70 year olds and six. So you kind of see it marching backwards through the, through the generations. Um, and in the wake of that, this global war breaks out and the draft is being reinstated. And so that's, when, that's all kind of high level world building stuff. But the core of the story is this brother and sister, Tommy and Virginia. Um, Tommy has just been drafted into the military um, and they want to take one final cross country trip together to go down yeah. to, Cape Canaveral to see a shuttle launch. Virginia, the sister, was a really big fan of the space program. There's this really massive launch that's happening. Even in the midst of the war, the idea is that it's this moment of inspiration for the country. Um, they're sending a mission to one of Jupiter's moons called Europa. Yeah. And Virginia's been really fascinated by that and in love with that her whole life. So she convinces Tommy, before he has a report to duty for the draft notice, to go with her on this trip across country. It's like their final trip together. And so we get to see this brother and sister at age 17 just moving across the country. And what we know and what they know is the last chance they'll have to be together. And so that's why it, it really just breaks down into a story of siblings. And they're just in a, a rough world they have to navigate, but they're still trying to be siblings. Yeah. And one of the things that really fascinated about this, and you, you, you touched on it, is that even in this moment when it looks like humanity is doomed and it's all going to be over pretty soon, they're still reaching out. They're still trying to go to the moon of Jupiter. What, uh, that, that to me um, was a surprising moment when, when I found that out. Um, so why did, you, why did you want to have that be part of, uh, of the way this was fitting together? Because it, to me, it, it summarized the feeling of we, how, the importance of dreams, period, mm-hmm. and the, the importance of aspirational goals, not only for the individual, but for society and for the world. The world. Um, it is... It is so vital. I mean, the world is itself is a, the world is a tough space to be in. Period. Yeah. Um, you know, we we particularly I think Americans live pretty comfortable lives, but like as a as a whole, humanity struggles, and just being being alive is tough some days. And so the idea is that that war gets so bad that like you still need something to be inspired by. Mm-hmm. Um, it could mm-hmm. be art, but in this case, it happens to be science. Yeah. Um, because I grew up the same kind. I was like Virginia growing up. I, I had this really big love of astronomy, as many kids do. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I still, to this day, have a warm fascination with Europa. Like, it is my favorite moon, if you can have a favorite moon. <laughs> Some people say Titan and all this kind of stuff, but whatever. Um, I, I think anybody who has a favorite moon, that speaks <laughs> highly of them. You know? <laughs> Thank you. Um, yeah, and so, and there's still this, you know, even, you know, in the real, you know, in the book, they're they're just reaching out one more time. Like, humanity knows or it kind of, it's kind of beginning to accept that its number may be up. Like, it yeah. doesn't know if it's going to be able to survive this plague and the war. And yet there's still this importance of we still have to believe that dreams are possible. We can achieve bigger things. Yeah. And to me, that's one of the things that sets this apart from other dystopian literature that, that I've read, is that there's this kind of little ray of, 
of of hope, if you will, in in that moment. What this is, you know, it's obviously dystopian is a genre that has been done a lot. It's been done as as young adult books a lot, as as novels for adults. Um, what did you want to bring to that genre that was that was new, that was different? Um, it's hard to say, really. I think for me. Because it may sound weird, but like I have I have trouble qualifying books as dystopian. Um, I mean, I understand obviously how to qualify books as dystopian. I think my book falls into that category. Um, but I didn't go in saying, "Oh, I'm gonna write a dystopian novel." Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, I kind of went into the project just. I had two characters, and I wanted to send them off on a journey somewhere. And as the project grew, again, like those those fears and things like that kind of came to it. So for me, it was really just this attempt to discuss for myself as a very selfish act like the idea was to discuss the things that i'm afraid of in terms of like the world as a whole you know i'm afraid of plagues and wars and violence kind of unrestrained like the idea of the social system kind of breaking down and all of these elements kind of come crashing down like the effect that that would have on not only just myself but you know children as well and so i didn't go into it necessarily trying to trying to quote unquote say anything new or doing that matter it was really just me trying to sort through a lot of my personal fears or things what authors mm-hmm. are kind of always doing yeah um and so yeah and it just happened to fall in a dystopian kind of umbrella yeah and of course is for me it was interesting i mean i'm reading this book about this mysterious plague that's wiping out humankind and i put it down and i turned the tv on and it's <laughs> coronavirus and i'm <laughs> exactly. like oh no you know um, yep, yep, yep. but it is amazing how uh you know, we write we, we write it down, and then and then reality seems to sort of, yeah, in some way or other, imitate your imagination, my imagination. You know, yeah, it's uh, it's it's very it's always very surreal and humbling how, um, yeah, life imitates art. Like you, you think you yeah. imagine something, and then you turn on the news, and there's some iteration of it in the real world, or vice versa. So, yeah, I mean, why do you think that those types of post-apocalyptic or near-apocalyptic novels? Um, are so popular do you think is it is it as simple as we like to contemplate our own death and so therefore contemplating the death of the species is is an extension of that or is there something more to it i think it, i think it's i think it's very close to that i think it is a type of catharsis um you know it's the same reason we like roller coasters and you know quote the we like faux near-death experiences like we yeah. like to be terrified at horror movies because we know we're going to walk out of it and be okay. And so right. I think we enter into dystopian novels novels with this idea. We, we you know, it's just a few page, words on a page. Like, we're going to be okay at the end yeah. of it, no matter how harsh it's the world is. paper. Yeah. yeah, we're all going to be okay. And it, it, it becomes our, our own personal roller coasters that we get to kind of, you know, this imaginative roller coaster. We get to go in there and view how terrible things are. And then you, at the end of it, you turn the light off and you walk outside and everything's fine. It's snowing, yeah. beautiful, it's, calm, quiet. Exactly. Yeah. exactly. You're... Protagonist Tommy and Virginia are 17 years old. It's mm-hmm. an age that you describe as, and I'm quoting from the novel here, too old for dreams, too young for reality. <laughs> Why did you choose protagonists who were who were teenagers, who were that age? Because it it reflected such a that age always reflects such a a moment of change, obviously, um, and it is that weird space where you you've lost your you've lost your blind belief oftentimes in the world, particularly with these two characters, but. At that age, most people have, you know, Santa Claus isn't real. You, you're learning how things that you thought were simple and basic and quote unquote real aren't the way that they were or even though it just don't, never existed at all. Yeah. Um, and yet you refuse to accept it. Like you still have that, that young level of optimism. Like you, you, you still can see the best in the world and wait for change and possibility in the world. And so I think having that 
that being at that age of the handoff from one era to the other fit with the theme of the novel of this this kind of global handoff where yeah. like humanity is certainly passing the torch from the older generation who is literally dying off it's being forced to pass the torch on to this younger generation um so that they just work those two ages work thematically and um because i did i did str not struggle but i did bounce around with tommy and virginia's age a little bit mm -hmm. um but yeah 17 just felt right like it 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 was the perfect age to provide friction and yet comfort at the same time. Yeah, yeah. I've, I've had the same experience you've had with this novel in terms of writing a novel where the, at least one of the protagonists was both female and a lot younger than myself. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure people have asked you, what's it like to write across gender? But I'm right. actually more interested in what's it like to put yourself in the shoes of, of a 17-year-old and you know, what, how did you get into writing in the voice of a teenager? Um, I spent a lot of time with my nieces. Oh, yeah. I, I have, I've got nieces and nephews who have been a big part of their lives for, you know, for their entire lives. Yeah. Um, and so a lot of it was just trying to see through their perspective, trying to, and trying to remember my own, my own experiences from that age bracket. Um, it, you know, the, the gender aspect of it was definitely a challenge as well. Um, sure. you know, obviously the, the life of, of women are, is very different than the life of men. Um, but so much of, again, I, just, I lean on people around me. Like, I think that yeah. as an author, yeah. you've got to, you know, use those resources. Um, and so luckily my, my nieces were all very cooperative. They had no problem talking about things and just kind of, you know, having, you know, candid conversations about whatever. And so Tommy and Virginia are not just, uh, siblings, they're twins. Mm -hmm. And Virginia at one point in the novel reflects on what that means to, to be a twin is, uh, do you have personal experience with twins or where, where did that come from? <laughs> that came out of, I had no, no personal experience with twins. That grew out of my love of mythology. Um, oh, yeah. As I mentioned, like I grew up just with such an addiction to mythology in all forms. And the twin is such a trope in mythology, of various mythologies. Yeah. Um, and so Tommy and Virginia, I wanted to, to play with that and have them be these binaries and that, that pushed and pulled on each other. Yeah. Um, so that's where that came from, just my, my childhood love of mythology. It's, it, I just, it really um, clicked for me because... I have a middle grade book coming out next year and there's two characters and some point during the editing, uh, my agent or my editor or somebody said, well, what if they were twins? And, you know, mm -hmm. they're, they're teenage character. They're sort of, we don't really define their ages. And it was fascinating how that one change yes. from siblings to twins, yes. even almost without saying anything else, mm -hmm. um, changed the dynamic of the relationship. Yes. Uh, yeah. And, and there's, a, there's an implied intimacy, I think. Yeah. I think with there, twins. Yeah, there's, there's super strong implied intimacy. Um, because yeah, I mean, this here's a person who shares, you know, shares that you know they began when you began in very clear and expressed literal terms, um, and I think that is something that is very rare. I mean, how often do you even find people that were born on the same day or yeah, got yeah. you know the day and end of year? Like, you know, good luck finding that person. So to have someone grow up with someone who you both entered into the machine of life on the exact same day at the exact same time, yeah. like and to carry that journey forward is something that I think is has to be unique and special. Yeah. So interspersed between chapters about Tommy and Virginia's journey uh, are these letters from, because they have been orphaned, mm -hmm. um, but they have, these, they have these letters from, from their parents. Mm -hmm. uh, why did you want to have that sort of epistolary uh, aspect to the novel? Um, I think it worked. It, I wanted it to be, I wanted Tommy and Virginia to have some link with their parents. Yeah. Um, and also the, the letters in nature tend to be these, these thoughts on this father's thoughts that he wanted yeah. to give yeah. to his children. Um, and that was also kind of my way of sorting through my fears and talking about like, just, you know, there's a, there's one letter that talks about like nine 11. Um, 
it was again like kind of my way of sorting through like how would I explain this world that I'm leaving behind to someone like I yeah. feel like they're yeah. I think humans have had and continue to have a certain degree of responsibility that we often I feel like we oftentimes shirk unfortunately um, but we we are stewards of of a planet and of a life and of a social order and we're stewards of many things and we oftentimes we pass on the we, ha- we make this handoff that is a very kind of flawed handoff like mm-hmm. I think there are a lot of things that we as as people fail to one maintain or even improve and you know even maintain and so what do we say to someone like when we when we give our children or our grandchildren or our great grandchildren we give them a planet that may not be as good as it was when we found it yeah like how do you have that discussion so those letters kind of became a lot of that this father trying to sort out his thoughts on the world that he was bringing his children into and the world that he was possibly leaving behind and how he wanted to reconcile that with them. And he becomes really, without being physically present in their lives, he really becomes a character in the novel through, through these letters. I mean, we only, that's the only way we hear from him, but he, he, uh, he becomes a real presence, I think. Yeah. yeah um, you know, parents are always the shadow that our lives grow out of. And like, regard, even if your parent is a, a, you know, a was wasn't there if your parent raised you from the entire time that you know you've been born. Like they, they're this shadow that we cannot escape, even if yeah. we try to escape. Yeah. And so I definitely want to try to pull that into the novel as much as possible. So you mentioned that one of the letters talks about nine eleven and mm-hmm. the father's reactions to that, and he describes it as the day things went from the way they were to the way they would become. Mm-hmm. Um, in what way do you think that his statement about nine eleven is is true? It. It's, it's one of those generation-defining moments. that, you know, And those moments, they, they occur every 30, 40 years. You know? Um, you know, if you go back to the 60s, you had the assassinations of JFK, Martin Luther yeah, King. Like yeah. And then you skip forward, and like there, there are definitely big events along the way. I'm not trying to detract from the big events, but like there are these moments where you remember where you were when this thing happened. And those moments tend to be fewer and far between. Um, you know, for me... The two, the two moments that I remember where I was when they, they occurred was 9-11 and the Challenger explosion. Yeah, yeah um, ditto. Yeah. yeah, which is another like, thing I talk about in the novels. Because like, the Challenger explosion was such a dramatic and, again, like, just defining moment of my life. Yeah. Um, I, I still so clearly remember being in the classroom. You know, we were in, I was, I was in you know, grade school, and the teachers rolled in this television like they do, and we're sitting there, we were all watching and then the shuttle explodes in front of a room full of oh, kids. Gosh. And there was, there, was, there was this pause where none of us knew what, like, there was this disbelief, like, is this supposed, like, not, is this, but like, there was just such a disbelief. Yeah. And I remember looking around at the instructor, the teachers, waiting to get my, like, what should, how should I react to this? Trying to have, waiting for them to show me how to react to this thing that I probably, I just couldn't process, was too young to process at the time. And I still remember this one teacher just started sobbing. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that was when it, the reality of like, oh, we just watched these people. This wasn't what they were die. expecting to show yeah, us. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Um, but there was that that pause between when the when the shuttle exploded and the teacher began again crying. That pause between those two moments is the one of the biggest life defining moments of of my personal really? of, yeah. of my existence. Yeah. Like. There was so much that happened in that. Looking back on it now, like, yeah, yeah. that was when everything was different. From from that that explosion to that crying, there was this this moment of 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 change that occurred. Yeah. That's um, incredible that you can remember that. that at, you know, at a young age, that how 
how it changed your perspective. I mean, I think as horrible as the Challenger explosion was, and I do remember that day so well, um, it it didn't sort of shift the whole dynamics of the world right? Yes. in the way that you could argue that 9-11 did. Right. And I remember sitting there on 9-11 listening to the newscasters say, nothing's ever going to be the same again. And I thought, well, that's an exaggeration. And I think it is an exaggeration, but it certainly changed you know, we, we live in a world that was shaped on that day. In yes. Many ways. Yeah. Oh, hardly. Oh, hardly. So Virginia has this very particular gift, um, which she calls the memory gospel, which I think is a great name for it. Tell us about that and, and what it, uh, how it shapes her view of the world. Yeah. The, the, the memory gospel is, is very simply, it is an identic memory yeah. kind of pushed to the, tenth, to the nth degree. Um, she remembers everything period. Like, Every second of her existence, every breath she's ever taking, every sunrise, every meal she's eaten, every moment, every every hour she can access, and it's, it's still there, it's still playing in the same way that and every word out. she's ever read. Yes, every know, word she's is ever the read. One that really every, intrigues me. Yeah, yeah. exactly. It, and it is it is a thing that it started off. Um, it started off on a much smaller scale. It was just like, oh, what if she just has a really good memory? And then, like again, with I wanted that idea, that theme of like myth- mythological kind of siblings. Yeah. Um, I, that was what made me really push it to the farthest extreme, um, and that's when it became really intriguing because you know that I, as I worked on the character and, re- and wrote the novel, I realized how terrible that would actually be. Yeah. Um, and Virginia discovered, you know, she, she as she grows, she 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 grapples with that. Like it is a, a terrible curse to be able to remember everything. Like, yeah. Um, Working on this novel, I, I contemplate a lot how how important forgetting actually is. Yeah. Um, you you can't grow if you're stuck in the moment forever. Like you have to be able to forget, and that includes forgetting people who have passed away. Like both my parents have passed away, and like as much as I as much as I love them, obviously, um, if I couldn't, and you know, you beat yourself up for for, for starting to forget things as time marches forward. Like you forget. Yeah certain you forget the smell whatever you forget things about people that you loved and you beat yourself up for it but the truth is if you could remember all everything about oh, them, gosh it'd yeah. be terrible it'd be horrible well i mean it, I, I think about you talked about that moment between mm-hmm. the shuttle and your right and the it would be like living in that moment yes, exactly. all the time exactly you know? exactly um but uh but i think and and I, as I recall, she actually reads these letters from her father just one time. Right. And when we see them in the text, we're seeing them through yes. through her memory. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, Tommy, on the other hand, has this this sense of inadequacy. He says, "I never know how to do anything right." Um, how, how does his character contrast with his sister? Yeah, Tommy is the he, he's the binary. Like Tommy has the almost the exact opposite kind of kind of affliction where. He is, you know, cursed slash blessed with the ability to forget things, almost like, almost like to the context of like an animal, yeah. um, where yeah. he he struggles to maintain, and so he he's sort of blessed with his ability to kind of be in the moment at all times, and yet he realizes and he understands just how equally tragic that is because it 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 ruins communications, it it ruins connections with people, it ruins, it ruins relationships, like. Yeah. If you can't hold on to certain things, you wind up just floating, um, you know, very much like an animal does. And he hates that about himself, particularly in in light of having a sibling who remembers every single thing. Yeah. Which just only intensifies his, his yes, feeling of, of exactly. inadequacy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Tommy says at one point, I just don't understand how holding on to the past does anything good for the future. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, he has a sister who, as you said, can't help but hold on to the past. Um that, to me, that line almost feels like an epigram for this book. Um, can you talk about what 
you think the crossing has to say about the relationship between the past and the future? Yeah, I, th- I think that, that that would be a good epigram for the book. Like the uh, the crossing definitely wants to talk about our our obsession with the past and how it can become very toxic and very very dangerous for for ourselves and for those we leave behind. Um, you know, I, I talk a lot about you know not to get too much on like the environmental high horse, but like we 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 are. We're, I was arguing we're, we're semi-poor stewards sometimes. Yeah. And we, we don't make decisions in terms of like, we make decisions based upon the past. We used to do it this way, so let's keep doing it that way. Right, right. And we want to hold on to past traditions and past glories, and we want to hold the past as much as possible, and we do it at the, the expense of the future, like yeah. on, on a daily basis. Like, you know, we, we have love affairs with very unhealthy things from, from food to cigarettes to whatever. Um, and I, I'm just as guilty as anyone else. Like I, you know, I love a good steak and I love a fast car, gas guzzler and all those kinds of things. Um, but I think the crossing wants to talk about the fact that we need to just be aware of that and really engage with that. And sometimes consider the fact that like the past was meant to be the past and it's meant to be forgotten and walked to walk away from So her, uh, Tommy and Virginia's father was a, a journalist. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I'm going to ask you to read a passage because I just really liked this passage a lot. Um, <laughs> okay. But it's Tommy and Virginia's father writing about the fair. And it's, uh, I think it starts on the bottom of 68, but it sort of goes mostly out of the top of 69. But just, if you would just read like a few sentences of that, of that fair description for us. Um, his, uh, while, while Jason's finding the, the passage for us, um, just to set this up, he has this column where he writes about the good things, um, the nice things in the world. And his, and his boss comes and says, uh, we, we got to cut this back to like once a month because we don't want to have all this good news in our newspaper. Uh, but this is a, this is a piece that he's remembering writing about the fair. Sure thing. I didn't want sports and I didn't want crime. I wanted people. I wanted to write about the fair that had just arrived. I wanted to describe the way the lights lit up the sky until they reached the clouds. I wanted to talk about the laughter that could never drown out the familiar and strange music that seemed to rise up from everywhere at the fairground, sounding unlike anything else over the course of your life. I wanted to tell people about the world and twirl, the teacup ride, the rocking ship and the rocket ship, the bumper cars, the cotton candy that promised heaven and diabetes at the same time. All of it mattered just then. It wasn't hope anymore. It was doctrine. People needed to know it still existed, just like they needed to know that there was someone who heard their prayers in the late hours of the night. So do you think there, I mean, I, I just love the, the whole, this whole idea of him writing about the, the beauty of the ordinary. Mm-hmm. Um, do, do you think that this, this passage and his attitude in general um, tells us that in spite of all these things we've been talking about, that, that maybe the place where we find hope is in the ordinary? Yes, wholeheartedly. I, I, I truly believe that. Um, the, I think Americans in particular, um, we, or at least the contemporary, contemporary world, we, we want exceptional everywhere that we go. Like we don't, we don't just want a sunset. We want the best sunset we've ever seen. We want the best meal we've ever right, had. Right. And, you know, we want the best clothes, the best car. Like we, we want all these extremes. And one thing I've, I've found consistently through life is that the the ordinary can be so spectacular. Yeah. Um, just the most basic walk that you take, just the, even even the the action of driving your car, even if you've got an old clunker, like 
to me, there is such a wonder and fascination in that, like the, the distances that we can travel, like the, the threads that we were able to attach through just through driving, getting your old clunker and driving across town, you know, journeys that would take us, you know, weeks, we now cover in hours. Yeah, and yeah. all of those things to me are completely wondrous and fascinating. Like, you know, going to the fair and just that, that chaos of the, the autumn fair that comes and there, you know, the fair is, it's just a fair. Like you can't get it anywhere else. It only happens that one time a year. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it, it amazes me how often we, we overlook the, the exceptional moments. Um, and I think that if we, if we kind of slow things down and really focus on those, like there, there's so much in the course of a day that is wondrous and amazing. Yeah. And yet we, because we've seen it before, we just kind of, oh, okay, and just move on with it. But if we can kind of take a little bit of Tommy's ability to see things anew over and over and over again, um, I don't know, I think, I think life would be pretty awesome sometimes. And I think that sort of hits that too. Tommy is, I mean, he's 17, but there is a childlike mm-hmm. nature to mm-hmm. Tommy. And I think, you know, as you were saying about, you know, we should, we should see the wonders in the ordinary. We're sitting here, there's this beautiful snow falling outside our window <laughs> and beautifully it is not sticking to the roads. So, yes. you know, but, um, <laughs> but I think about that, you know, what we need to do is children naturally have that reaction mm-hmm. to the world. We have a, we have a four-year-old friend in our lives that we take care of one day a week and it was snowing last week and he came home, we brought him home from school and he, he didn't want snacks. He didn't want candy or cookies. Or, he wanted to sit in front of the window and just mm-hmm. watch the snow. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, or a, a few days ago, he, we were sitting out on the back porch and we have a gas fire out on the back porch. And he said, this, it was raining and it was cold. He said, this is a nice day to just sit and watch the fire. And like being around him and seeing that attitude um, really like helps us do exactly yes. what, you, what you just yes. said to see. Yes. Uh, and I think Tommy, do you think Tommy sort of serves that purpose? Um, yeah, in this wholeheartedly. Narrative? Tommy, because yeah. I think... Tommy is, he is somewhat childish. Like, and it's because of the fact that he, he doesn't build up that tolerance that we get from seeing, that you get from seeing things again and again and again, because he can kind of forget it and see it anew over and over and again. And so because of that, he, he is kind of this perpetual kid who's yeah. just growing into the body of a young man. Um, but he, he does have that wonderful gift where he can, yeah, he can see a, a snow falling outside and see it brand new, even though he's seen it however many dozen times before, it gets to be new again. And I think that's, that's the thing that we all chase. Like that's the moment yeah, that we all yeah. want is to to see the the familiar anew all over again. Mm-hmm. And I think it's the thing about it is, I think those moments are wonderfully achievable. Like they are really, really things that we can do. It takes work though. We we it takes we have to force ourselves to stop. Yeah, and that's the hardest exactly. thing to do. Yeah. yeah. Um, but if you if you can ever just force yourself to stop and sit. And not go do the next thing and not think about the next thing and not worry about the politics, or like whatever is on your brain to just say, no, I'm gonna just sit here and stare out the window. It turns into a wonderful afternoon all of a sudden. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I, it's hard I, I saw somebody post something at some point about, um, about flying and they said, mm-hmm. you know, all people are complaining, complaining, oh, my flight yes. got delayed by 40 <laughs> minutes or this, but, and they're like, you know, you're in a giant metal tube yep. traveling up in this. Air, I mean, there's just, it's this miracle. It is. It and, completely and, is. And we're so caught up in, you know, did my tray table work properly? And yeah. did I get my ice in my drink? That, that we miss. Yeah. Because we're, we're so the miracle. to it. And, yeah. yeah. And yeah. like, I have that, I'm a, I'm a car guy. I love cars. Yeah. I, love, I love driving. Um, and it, it always, it fascinates me on a really consistent basis how much we take for granted the act of driving and like the, the interactions oh, that happen absolutely. there. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you, we're, you're, if you if you if you told if you said someone, 
I'm going to put you in a 5,000 box, a 5,000 pound box of steel and aluminum. <laughs> and I'm going to just send you down the road at 70 miles per hour. And I'm going to throw 200 other people on there with you. And some of them are going to be driving right at you at moments. Like it sounds like the most terrifying yeah, thing yeah. to ever do to a person. And yet we get in the game, we do it we every day. Even think twice about it. Don't even think twice about it. And yeah. that fascinates me sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, yeah, I think that the other thing about Tommy and his, his inability to remember his, as you said, his sort of being the opposite of Virginia is that he doesn't have the scars that yes. she has from yes. the death of the parents, from mm-hmm. difficult foster situations. Mm-hmm. Uh, can you talk about that for, for just a minute? Yeah. Um, that's another one of Tommy's kind of, kind of blessings and you know, advantages is, you know, a lot of what does weigh us down as we grow through through the years is that we can recall, you know, there's there's a thousand deaths of that happen to a person over the lifetime. Yeah. Um, you know, you you start to realize that this thing isn't true or this thing isn't the way you believe, thought it was. Like there are all these the childhood innocence that we have, like you you lose your innocence a thousand times over the course of a yeah. life. Yeah. Um, and then eventually you wake up one day and, you know, the, the lens through which you see the world is very cloudy and suddenly it feels like a very, you feel like you've woken up in a different body almost. Like you don't, the world isn't the way it was and you mourn that and you lament that sometimes. Um, Tommy is pretty unaffected by that, which I think is yeah. his a wonderful, wonderful way to kind of exist um, in that he can have the loss and then let it go and see the world the way it was even before the loss kind of occurred, go back to the kind of reset the button and kind of say, okay, this thing happened, but I don't, don't remember that anymore. I'm just going to kind of march forward into it and see how the things go. Um, and a lot of that grew out of me grappling with the death of my parents. Like my, mm-hmm. my mm-hmm. mother passed when I was 21 or so. My father passed about five or six years later. Um, and I've had to, I've had to force myself to forget things almost. Yeah. Um, only because the the weight and like the sadness of like wanting this person back, like kind of living in Virginia's world, yeah. living in that space where I remember it's, you know, all the things that, you know, the just, just, just kind of languishing in that pain, like that, like, you know, that moment between the challenger exploding and, you know, the, the realization, like yeah. the, the desire, I had too much of a desire to be in that moment and to be sad and kind of broken up by it. Um, and yet time was still marching forward. And I had to learn to just, let that go. Um, and to, to say, okay, like that, you know, I, I wish my mother was here. I wish this thing hadn't happened, but it did. And the world is still okay. Like, yeah. I, I'm still okay. I yeah. can still function and go forward and have happiness, but that only comes by being willing to let go and willing to kind of like move on with things a little bit, and which doesn't mean loving them less or completely throwing them out of your life. Yeah. But yeah. It, does, it just means like allowing yourself to move forward as opposed to digging your heels into a moment and re- refusing to leave, leave that moment. Yeah, I mean, I think there is there comes a time in grief where there is a, a necessary mm-hmm. callousness almost, yes. you know, yeah. where if you don't go to that moment, then you yeah. are, are not going to progress as a person or, you know, Mm-hmm. Uh, and and mm-hmm. you know yeah thank thank goodness we're thank goodness we're somewhere most of us somewhere in between Tommy and yeah. and Virginia where yeah it's, it's, yeah because both the two extremes are are pretty difficult for their own reasons like yeah yeah I've met people for sure who are still stuck in those places for you know decades after some event and it's it's terrible yeah um, so do you see this book as as a warning as an adventure as a fantasy as all of the above <laughs> um I hope I. I I hope it's just a fantasy, but I, I, the, the realist in me kind of sees it almost as a warning. Mm-hmm. Um, because again, so much of it, you know, the, the dysto- so many of the dystopian elements currently exist yeah. in the world. Like I just, I just took, I was, you know, I was 
watching a lot of news reports and reading a lot of articles and I just really took them and said, okay, I'm going to push this two degrees and put it in the novel. But the thing is right. like, I had to have something to work from. Like the thing is there, we, you know, we just have, you know, it's just a matter of pushing it. So I think there, there's a bit of a warning in it for certain about, you know, about the world, about politics, about human nature, um, that needs to be, I think, at least looked at and discussed, which is kind of why, you know, the, the joy of writing is to kind of breathe this discussion about those things. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Well, we like to end every episode of Inside the Writer's Studio with the same 10 questions. You should Ooh, okay. be able to answer each of them in just a few words, but hopefully they'll give us a little insight into you and into your writing. Okay. So if you're ready, we will begin. Go for it. What word do you love to work into your writing? <laughs> um, my favorite word is shenanigans. Oh, that's a great word. Um, I have to be careful not to do it too often. <laughs> but so I will That'd go be with a good that title for a novel, oh, actually. Yes. You know, yeah. um, what word do you hate to encounter in other people's writing? Utilize. I absolutely hate that word. I yeah. Think it's, yeah so. <laughs> it's just use, right? Yeah. Where's your favorite place to write? At home, um, yeah, I just nothing really fancy. I've got I just sit on the couch and I put on some really bad '80s action movies in the background. <laughs> you know, Schwarzenegger and John Claude Van Damme doing stuff in the background, and that's my writing stuff. So I love it. Where could you never write? I don't know. I guess is you know, as long as I'm alone, I can. I, just, I can't write around people, so okay. I guess I could. I could yep. never write in a yep. crowd. To what rule of grammar do you pay least attention? Fragments, sentence fragments. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I definitely you know I look out for them, but they I don't I don't lose sleep over them at all. Yeah. What was the first book you remember reading? I can't remember the title. I just I do remember I just remember being about mythology. I can't yeah. remember the exact yeah. title though. What are you reading now? Um, what am I reading right now? I just finished reading. I'm actually still reading The Monkey and Rich Gang. Actually, mm -hmm. uh, it's about a bunch of eco terrorists during the '70s. <laughs> what book would you like to have written? Grendel. Oh, yeah. <laughs> John Gardner's Grendel. Yeah. I, would, I really wish I could have written that. <laughs> what What sort of book would you like to write, but probably never will? There's a part of me that wants to do, um, and I call it the you know the the Moby Dick genre, where yeah, it's just you yeah. know really detailed, high you know quote unquote highfalutin, as I like to call it, um, kind of excessively verbose. Like I would love to be able to do that, but just be, just to kind of put that pip on the shoulder. Yeah. Uh, even though I hate reading that kind of stuff. So. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and finally, what would you like to hear a reader tell you? Um, that that I would like to hear someone hear a reader say. Um, your book was really important to me. Mm. I think that's that's the goal of most authors is just to to know that you've written something that has an impact on someone, yeah. a positive impact. This has been Inside the Writer's Studio. I'm your host, Charlie Lovett, and the podcast is sponsored by Bookmarks, a literary nonprofit that runs the largest annual book festival in the Carolinas and operates a community gathering place and nonprofit independent bookstore in downtown Winston-Salem, North Carolina. To find out more about Bookmarks and all its programs, visit www.bookmarksnc.org. My guest today has been Jason Mott, author of The Crossing. Uh, and you can buy signed copies of that book right here at Bookmarks. Jason, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. If you've enjoyed Inside the Writer's Studio, please consider posting a review or rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Inside the Writer's Studio posts new shows on the 1st and 15th of every month. On our next episode, I'll be talking to Eric Larson, best-selling author of The Devil and the White City, whose new book, The Splendid and the Vile, examines the first year of Winston Churchill's prime ministership. Until then, thanks for listening, and may you read with wonder and write with passion.